0: to the book of Proverbs. We turn this morning to Proverbs chapter 24. There are times when it is right to break from a series, to take up a particular subject, and times when it behooves us to pause to consider what does God's Word require of us at this particular historical moment in which we find ourselves. We are living, after all, as our fathers and mothers, all of them, did before us, living in a particular unique moment, which is ours to fill with faith and with obedience. It's easy to look back and see their moments with crystal clarity, isn't it? Perceiving our own takes a little more wisdom, requires that we stop and raise our heads and look about us and ask how our moment will be remembered and in turn whether we will be found in retrospect to have been faithful in it. And here's a little hint from a man who more than met the moment in which he lived. He knew the times, he understood them, he responded well to the challenges of his day. Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer is still speaking to us, though dead, wrote with his friend C. Everett Koop, cultures can be judged in many ways, but eventually every nation and every age must be judged by this test. How did it treat people? Each generation, each wave of humanity evaluates its predecessors on this basis. The final measure of mankind's humanity is how humanely people treated one another. We might add some qualifiers, I suppose, but we understand the point. How will you and I be remembered by future generations who look back on this, our unique moment? How will the next wave of humanity judge us? But even more importantly, infinitely more importantly, how will God judge us? Let's pray. Father, a most solemn reminder that we will stand before the judge of all the earth and give answer For every deed done in the body, whether good or evil, says the Apostle Paul to us. And in accordance with all your word, that tells us we will have to give answer for what we have done and for what we have left undone. That being the case, O God, we pray that you will meet us in this word, that you will speak to us, but that When we leave this place, we may leave not only hearers, but as doers of your word as well. And for that, O God, we must have your wisdom. Please supply it now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 24, not starting at verse 11, as I put in the bulletin, but verse 10, rather. Proverbs 24, verse 10, If you faint in the day of adversity... Your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man? According to his work, am I my brother's keeper? Remember that question and who asked it, it was Cain, of course. And when, while well, his brother's blood was running out under the ground, am I my brother's keeper? It ranks up there with the most cynical of. Bible questions like Pilate's, what is truth? The answer to Cain's question we know by sanctified instinct is, yes. Yes, I am. You are your brother's keeper. The rest of Scripture rises up in resounding tones to agree that we are responsible for our brother. Others' welfare is our business. Responsibility for the care of other human beings, inasmuch as we are able to affect that care, lies immediately at our feet, every day. I am my brother's keeper. What must that mean for us today? What does that require of us in our unique historical moment? Well to answer, we must ask what is the need of our particular historical moment? Where are human beings suffering that it is now in our reach, in our power to help? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor of the early twentieth century, found himself thrust by the moment of history of his life into the responsibility for Jewish human beings who were being rounded up and tortured and slaughtered by the thousands, before it was finished by the millions. In the days when Hitler's Third Reich was just coming into power, he could see with prophetic eye what his task must be to run interference for a slice of humanity that was under direct and brutal attack in his day and place. His resistance to Hitler cost him dearly. In fact, it cost him even his very life, which he surrendered, stripped naked and hanging on a Nazi gallows. If you read about Bonhoeffer, you'll find out that he could easily, very easily, have lived out his years in comfort, the years of the Second World War in particular, in the comfort and safety of America. Studying and publishing and living long, he would have done the Christian church a great service in his lifetime and and might easily have convinced himself of that. Instead, he did a greater service for which he will one day receive great blessing and reward from God. He did not faint in the day of adversity, as the writer of that proverb put it. He went back to Germany, Bonhoeffer did. And did everything in his power, even to the point of death, to rescue those who were being taken away to death, to hold back those who were stumbling to their slaughter. Only after the war was done and the smoke began to clear did the horror, the full horror of Nazism come to light. Millions of Jews had died under that cruel regime. And True to Schaefer and Coop's assertion, we measure the humanity of that day by how humanely or inhumanely people treated people. The great dramatic moments of history have left us with monuments and memories of compassion, love, and unselfishness. They read onto, right, which punctuate the all-too-pervasive malevolence that dominates so much human interaction. That there is any respite from evil is due to some courageous people who have led campaigns against the ill-treatment and misuse of individuals. Each era faces its own unique blend of problems. Our own time is no exception. Those who regard individuals as expendable, raw material to be molded, exploited, and then discarded do battle on many fronts with those who see each person as unique and special, worthwhile, and irreplaceable. I think you know where I'm headed with this. This week, we observe the 41st anniversary of the decision of our own United States Supreme Court to override every state's jurisdiction by declaring abortion on demand to be legal in all 50 states. The Roe v. Wade decision that opened the floodgates of blood in our land. Since then, some 56 Million Americans have lost their lives not in battle, not in tragic invasions or terrorist attacks, but in the wombs of their own mothers. This year, if the pattern continues, another 1.2 million Americans will die. More Americans have died by abortion in the past year, one year than died in the revolutionary war, the civil war, world wars 1 and 2, the Korean, the Vietnam and the Gulf wars combined. How are we going to wrap our minds around these kinds of numbers? Think of it this way. To equal the number of people who have died by abortion in the United States since 1973, you would have to eliminate the entire population of Kentucky and Tennessee and Arkansas and Missouri and Iowa and Illinois, and Indiana, and Ohio, and West Virginia. Many of us can remember, though we can hardly believe it was over 12 years ago, when the former New York City Mayor, Rudolph Giuliani, described the loss of nearly 3,000 lives in the attack on the World Trade Center on September 1, 2001, as, quote, more than we can bear. We'd have to suffer 18,000 attacks of the same magnitude even to begin to approach the number of Americans who have died at our very own hands. Every single day, we kill more people in this nation than the terrorists did that day in New York. Terrorists don't have to attack America and kill us. We're killing ourselves. We're killing more effectively our own than they could possibly with a thousand planes or bombs. And so I ask you, how will our day be remembered in history? If Hitler killed his millions... We have our tens of millions. Did no one rise up? Generations will ask this. Did did Christians not know what was happening? Could they have possibly been ignorant of it all? Of course, our concern is not so much what the following generations will ask of us. They're nothing compared to the one who keeps watch over your soul and who repays each man according to his work. I've talked with various Christians about this over the years. i found that it is not as clear a situation in their minds as it is in others. I actually had one Christian man tell me flat out that it's the pagans and the heathens who are killing their own children. So why not let them do it? They're just killing their own anyway. Some Christians have been bamboozled by the same conversations that swirled around the highest court of our land four decades ago concerning what exactly constitutes a person. What is personhood? As though such a thing could be arbitrarily decided and assigned at some point in the womb to the individual growing there, thus creating a time when human life was morally disposable. By the way, it is a chilling fact that the way Hitler justified the slaying of millions of Jews was precisely to question their personhood, to declare them non-persons. Proponents of abortion have done the same exact thing. There is no difference And while we're at it, the chattel slavery once practiced in our own nation depended on that same argument and mentality that Negroes are not persons and therefore they're not protected under the law. Let me address those two arguments, the second one first, specifically the question of whether the unborn are persons, are human beings or not. Are they? Well, They've been conceived by two human beings, right? Not by two animals, not by an animal and a human. From the time of conception, they are genetically human. More importantly, the Bible's own perspective on the unborn is that he or she is a person. The psalmist has it. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That's a person that God is knitting. Not simply a blob of tissue, not an extension of a woman's body, not the product of conception. Personal terms are used in Scripture to describe the unborn. In Genesis, it is children, the plain word for children, after they are born, who wrestle in Rebekah's womb before they are born, Jacob and Esau. In Luke's Gospel... As we were reminded recently around Christmas time when Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the Baptist and Mary greeted her, it was the baby that leaped in her womb. The same word for baby, brephos, that's used in the next chapter, for the born Jesus, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, and for the children brought to Jesus by their parents for his blessing in chapter 18 of that same gospel. In many ways, in many places in Scripture, the unborn are described personally. Personally, with a destination before them, on their way from one world to the next. Personally, bearing in themselves, everyone, the image of God, their creator. The popular arguments offered today for regarding the unborn impersonally fall flat every time. The idea that the individual in the womb becomes a person when he reaches a certain size fails because we do not consider smaller people to be non people, less persons, and outside of the womb, no less persons than the taller or bigger person next to them, even the smallest kid in the class. Still a person. We don't consider infants. Non-people, because they're smaller, even if they look kind of weird, with big heads and stubby limbs, except for Kira, of course, the exception, the cute one. Arguments from location fail as well. An individual does not become a person because he moves from one place to another, from St. Paul to Chicago, from Chattanooga to Orlando. Traveling four inches through a birth canal does not magically transform a non-person into a person. Breathing air without aid doesn't make a person, or else we have hospitals full of people who are non-persons on respirators. The ability to reason or to convey thoughts in discernible language does not define a person, else infants and the severely handicapped are not people. Hitler, by the way, labeled retarded people non-persons and immediately emptied the asylums into the crematoriums. On the contrary, these little beings in the womb are simply coming to maturity. They're not becoming people. They are, as the late John Stott once put it, they are growing into the fullness of humanity that they already possess. But Granting that they are human beings, what of my friend's argument that they are heathen human beings and therefore not worth the effort to save and the energy? Well, the argument is a specious one for a couple of reasons. For one, we don't know which of these little ones are in the kingdom of God and which are not. Some of these little ones really are our brothers in the eternal sense, and therefore all the more we their keepers. One could make the same argument, by the way, about the gospel. As a matter of fact, I think my friend does. Why tell unbelievers about the gospel of Jesus Christ? After all, they're unbelievers. Well, yes, they are. But we don't know which ones God is saving. The fact that some will go to hell is no argument for withholding the gospel from all of them. Nor is it an argument for letting them fall under the abortionist's knife. And the proverb we just read makes no distinction. It doesn't identify specifically the ones being taken to death and stumbling to the slaughter. It's not believers alone who are mentioned. Who is it? Captives taken from war? Victims of Violence, children being sacrificed to pagan gods, it doesn't say. The Proverbs like, are like that. They present general principles to us and leave it to us with the Holy Spirit in our hearts and the word of God in our hands in the fear of the Lord to work them out, to apply and live them. But there's nothing here about Jews or Gentiles, white or black, healthy or sick, rich or poor, intelligent or dull, born or unborn. On the contrary, as you may have already read on the insert in your bulletins today, the rather colorful one, Scripture makes it plain that we are to do good to all men. Paul writes to the Galatians that we are to do good to everyone. Yes, he says, especially those who are of the household of faith, but to everyone. That being the case, we cannot possibly disqualify the unborn from this command to rescue those being led to death. We haven't the right to classify them as subhuman. That will not do. Certainly not before the eyes of him who looks on and knows our hearts. We must. We simply must. God requires nothing less of us than to do everything in our power to save those who are being led to death, including these little ones who are truly the most defenseless in our place and time. In any place and time, for that matter. But let us also remember that they're not the only ones being led to death. We've been reminded through revelations over the past year that it's not just fetuses, little ones going to the slaughter. Women, too, are victims of abortion, some more so than others. How many times do we not hear about yet another woman who has died during an abortion or as the effect of one? A woman's body does not part easily with her fetus. Women who have suffered abortions will tell you, many of them, that it required an virtu- act of virtual violence to separate them from their babies. Many women, will, uh, we find at the pregnancy center here in town, have been pressured by their boyfriends and their husbands to undergo abortion. Even fathers, pastors, doctors have pressured ladies to go to a place where even if they do not lose their own lives, they lose the thing most precious, as precious as their own lives, the lives of their own children. Post-abortion stress disorder has now been identified and is rampant these days, becoming Almost as much a concern for our pregnancy center ministries these days and priority as pregnancy tests and prenatal counseling. But the victims of abortion, the ones being led to death, go beyond fetuses and beyond mothers. Brothers and sisters, we are a culture stumbling toward death. Abortion has given way to infanticide. We're there. Babies born alive in botched abortions are left to die, shivering in hospital closets, gasping for air, just the way unwanted infants of pagan cultures of old were left to die of exposure. I make no doubt that abortion has also opened the way to euthanasia, the destruction of the elderly, and the handicapped Let us never forget Terry Schiavo. We are a nation stumbling to slaughter. Some years ago, Mother Teresa made the point quite eloquently and powerfully. I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today, she said, is abortion. Because it is a war against the child a direct killing of the innocent child, murder by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? How are you going to answer her? By abortion, she went on to say, the mother does not learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, the father is told that he does not have to take any responsibility at all for the child he has brought into the world. That father is likely to put other women into the same trouble. So abortion just leads to more abortion. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching the people to love, but to use any violence to get What they want. That's why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. I can hear some of you responding to these thoughts with a sigh of defeat. Fifty-six million. And on and on it goes. We've come so far. Maybe we're maybe we are past the point of no return in this nation. We've come so far. We've become comfortably numb and accustomed to this. Perhaps so. But that doesn't relieve us of this duty at this moment in which you and I are living. The tide is strong. Yes, it is. But God is stronger. What can you do? Well, there's still lots of things you may do. Just last week, the Supreme Court heard a case and seems at the moment to be inclined toward rolling back the so-called buffer zones around abortion clinics. You still have the right directly to appeal to and plead with women entering these death houses to turn back. Your government may not be very responsive these days, in fact, so-called Obamacare is probably the biggest boon to the abortion industry since Roe versus Wade. But you are still at liberty to write your leaders and to elect men and women who will pursue righteousness in Frankfurt and Indianapolis and Washington. Locally, there is a CareNet Pregnancy Center right here in Oldsboro, which I hope that you will remember started here in the basement of this church in the deacons room that you can support prayerfully and financially and at which you may even be able to volunteer some of our church's ladies have been agents of life have literally and directly turned back those who were stumbling to death By helping individual women choose life. Which of these or others to which the Lord is calling you? I do not know. But you do and you will. Most of all, because people will choose life who themselves have life, that is, eternal life, you may look for Every opportunity to share the gospel of life in Christ with your neighbors, with your friends, with your acquaintances. There's still so much to do, and that with God's help that we can do and must do. The one thing that we cannot do is nothing. And the one thing that we cannot say, that we will never be able to say, my brothers and sisters, is, I didn't know. God who weighs the heart will repay each of you according to your work. Amen.